HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, July 13th, 2021, and we'll be talking about another show about craft malt uh, with some, some new friends of ours. So we're going to go around the room and introduce ourselves. And uh, again, this has been a really special summer. We are talking to people all over the country, and uh, craft malt has been a big focus uh, for, for us this, this summer. So let's take it around the room. Let's start with Emily. Uh, please introduce yourselves. Hi, Jimmy. I'm Emily. I'm glad to be back. I'm calling in from Durango, Colorado at the Radcraft office. All right. And thank you for helping organize this show. And next is Phil. Hi, Jimmy. Yeah, I'm Phil Newman uh, with Mainstem Malts, and I'm calling in from Walla Walla, Washington. All right. And Brandon? Hey, Jimmy. Uh, Brandon Howard. I'm calling in from Juneau, Alaska, uh, where I uh, run Amalga Distillery with my wife. Great. And Kether? Hey, Jenny. This is Kether Sharf Gray. I'm uh, with Mainstem Malt, and I'm calling in from Seattle, Washington. Great. Well, welcome back to the show, Kether. Um, so, Emily, why don't you just run, run us through why you put this show together? Because we did a show a couple weeks ago about women defining craft malt, um, but this is a, a specific, this is a very important story. I think about regions of agriculture and connecting with, you know, what is the agriculture behind beer? And, and that's why I'm really excited about craft malt. And you guys have done a great job of, of helping to bring on a lot of guests uh, for, to talk about that. So what, what's the story with Mainstem Malt and, and why is this a good story for us? Thanks, Jimmy. Well, you use the word connecting, and I think that's the key here. Mainstem Malt is really diversifying what it means to own and operate a small malt house business. And they're doing so in this very human forward and conservation minded way. And that's really what um, attracted me to these stellar humans who are teaching me so much about not just craft malt, but where it comes from and then where it goes as a final product. 
Um, but these folks additionally are, are just so rooted in their community, in their region, in their commitment to craft malts, and also in their commitment to the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation, which I think is a component of a lot of modern day businesses that I really admire. So for all of the above, I was stoked to get involved with them and um, to actually contribute to their WeFunder campaign, which is something that the Amalga Distillery has done as well. So I thought that in the spirit of connectivity, it would be a great conversation, not just talking to the folks at Mainstem, but with a couple of their partners today as well. That's great. So now, Brandon, um, why are you on the show? I, I think you are an investor in the WeFund. And just tell us what, what's so special about Mainstem Malt for you as a, as a distiller. Yeah. Um, so we are an investor in, in, in main STEM. Um, you have know, known, uh, Phil for, uh, a little while now. And, uh, I mean, do you want, do you want the long story or the short story? You can do the long story. This is long form. <laughs> okay. Oh, great. Good. Uh, yeah. So a, a major component for us in, in making a craft, American single malt whiskey, you know, when we started down this path, American single malt wasn't really, wasn't really a buzz, you know, when we started four or five years ago, um, you know, I think Westland, uh, was, was really kind of forging the way, but also one of the few, um, few producers and, and something that we really wanted as part of our long-term business plan, right? Because when you, when you start making whiskey or you're kind of always thinking, long-term was to have a supply chain that we were really proud of, um, a supply chain transparency with, you know, malt that wasn't necessarily commodity was something really important to us. Um, but kind of a bigger long-term vision that we had was, um, using Alaskan grown barley, um, because it, 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 there's such a fascinating story with Alaska grown barley that a, a lot of people don't know. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, Alaska has this agrarian component to it. And, you know, I think it was back in the 70s or 80s, there was this really kind of crazy story of, you know, what Alaskans known as the, the failed barley project or failed barley experiment, um, (laughs) which is when the state pumped, I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars into uh, investing in farmland and and infrastructure to be able to produce barley, but they gave it no end market. There was no real purpose to it. It was just recognizing that barley could grow in the state and so let's grow it. And sadly, you know, all this farmland is developed and cultivated and all of the barley that we grow in the state, regardless of the quality of it, just goes to feed and people haven't really found anything to do with it. So I I have this personal belief that the project wasn't a failure. The farmers did what they set out to do, which is grow barley. Um, I think it was just a little ahead of its time because now all of a sudden, you know, the state of Alaska has so many breweries, you know, and new breweries popping up every, every year and several distilleries. And all of a sudden there's this really interesting and incredibly high dollar value, uh, uh, 
consumer that that wants that can use this Alaskan barley. You know, my distillery could use so much Alaskan grown barley. Um, and so, you know, the, it started as a pet project for us where we were doing, um, experimental floor maltings of Alaskan grown barley. And we had one that was going well in a lot of ways, but also <laughs> failing terribly in, in a lot of other ways. And I kind of posted a, like a half joking, um, you know, SOS help us out here, uh, on our, on our Instagram. When I saw that main stem malt, you know, we posted a picture of our, our floor malting and main stem malt commented on it in a positive way. And I saw, Oh my goodness, there's a malt house commenting and we need a lot of help. Um, and so ended up reaching out to Phil and, you know, his long-term vision of what craft malting can be and main stems approach to it really fit well with our long-term vision of what the state of Alaska needs for malting, right? We need a malt house, but we also need a lot of groundwork and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of groundwork laid between here and, you know, the state having a malt house or several malt houses, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of trials that need to be done and a, a lot of, a lot of information that needs to be gathered. And so, you know, malting isn't my expertise. I, I make whiskey. Um, and I knew that I was going to need someone or something like, like Mainstem uh, and Phil. And so, you know, short term for us, it, using main stem malt is a source of pride and supply chain transparency that, that we really value. You know, we love, um, you know, we, we love the business and, and long-term what we're really excited about is the relationship and the potential to have a main stem hub in the state of Alaska, which, you know, is, is my personal end goal. That's great. That's a great intro, Brandon. Now let's just go to, to, to Cather and Phil and just br bring us up to speed. Cather, you were just on a recent episode, so we know a little bit of your backstory. But but tell us what Mainstem's doing. Is Mainstem just a malt house? No, that's a that's a good question. I would contend that Mainstem is also, um, when you talk about a hub, we're also a hub of communication and of relationships. Um, and I think that's kind of the best part of Mainstem is that we are the combination of many powerhouses and, um, you know, a supply chain is not just the malt house. It's everything that's built around it. Um, and then also it's all of the people who back it. And so that's kind of the cool thing about Mainstem for All and about equity crowdfunding is that we are more than a malt house because we're serving malt to brewers and distillers. They're serving beer and, and spirits to the people. And um, that's a way for it to kind of all wrap up. And so I kind of see Mainstem as a bigger project overall. So where are you guys right now? Are you, do you have one location? Yeah, I can, I can step in on that. Uh, Jimmy, if you don't mind. Go for it, Phil. Yeah, so we're actually a bit of an odd duck in that sense in the craft malt community in that we're the only craft malt brand so far to really, really grow without our own physical malt house. So we've grown in in partnership and collaboration with um, now three different craft maltsters uh, in, the, in the craft maltsters guild community. And so it started off 
uh, in 2016, we had our, uh, we contracted for our first barley crop and, and we're trying to build a malt house in Milton Freewater, Oregon, and which is in the Walla Walla Valley. And, um, we couldn't get it financed. Uh, we had this relationship to fall back on with, with, uh, the founder of one of the founders of, of Link Malt, uh, and Link Foods, the co-op that operates the malt house. And uh, I went to Craft Malt Academy in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, back in 2015 with, with Joel Williamson. And, and so, yeah, there was this relationship to fall back on where they had extra capacity. We were able to do some contract uh, malting through them and, and we're able to, uh, get the brand going. And we subsequently, uh, added Skagit Valley malting as another one of our malting partners. And so then it became this supply chain management model that seemed to actually carry some weight. If we could, if we could grow a brand that could flexibly use capacity across multiple malt houses that needed to make more efficient use of their, uh, their plants, then man, that, that's a valuable service in and of itself. And then also, yeah, if we can, if we can then end goal for mainstem has always been, uh, supply chain sustainability and specifically starting with, with conservation on family farms. And so uh, we're not so concerned with, with um, you know, we want to know our stuff about malting. We want to have artisan chops, so to speak. Uh, but uh, if we can, we, we, it wasn't a, it wasn't a uh, deal breaker for us to not do our own, uh, to do malting in our own facility. So uh, yeah, that, that kept us going. And uh, since then, uh, we've been able to add uh, more recently add in uh, Montana Craft Malt as our our, our newest uh, malting partner, which they're operating the the largest craft malt house in in North America. So uh, now we're benefiting from from some economies of scale there that that we haven't seen before. And uh, so yeah, we're technically based in Walla Walla. Uh, we want to build our uh, one of our one of our first two uh, specialty malting hubs uh, in in Walla Walla. Uh, but currently it's, uh, my wife and co-founder and I living in, in town here and with some, with some big dreams of what's possible. And then, uh, this, this distributed team of Kether and based in Bellingham and, and, uh, three, three sales reps, our customer innovations team, uh, located up and down the I five corridor. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty much mainstem right now. And then a, a network of partners. When I when I think about malt, what I like about malt is it's similar to what I like about cider and apples. I just think about this big country <laughs> with all these ar- agrarian regions. And um, how, how does malt fit into like a regional ag- agricultural you know zone? Because there's you know Brandon was talking about growing barley in Alaska. Let, let's, let's try to tackle this bigger picture of first, like what are the regions and how, how are you going to fit in, fit in with them, you know, with main stem and your network. And um, just let, let's talk like that big at your, your agricultural vision or something. And Phil, first, just tell us how you got what you studied in school. Cause you studied something <laughs> about water, but then that really connected you to, to ag and then you mentioned walla walla and i think of sweet onion so we're in the we're in the earth right now right we are yeah uh okay so i'll try to weave my way through uh to basically like yeah kind of how uh how i got into malting 
Uh, and then, um, yeah, a little bit about the regionality of it in terms of uh, grain production and uh, where the malt's being used by customers. And then uh, pass it off to Kether for just uh, to talk a little bit about kind of who we're working with as growers and, and how we see that expanding over time. But uh, generally speaking, oh, uh, background first. Uh, my background's in uh, environmental studies, natural resource conservation, formally, uh, like that was kind of my career track uh, in was uh, specifically water resource conservation and management. And then uh, yeah, I went to Oregon State University, I got my master's in water resources there. Um, and yeah, graduated in 2011. And then, uh, then we ended up moving out, Alyssa and I ended up moving out to, to Walla Walla. And um, uh, yeah, we ended up moving out to Walla Walla. And then uh, I started a job working for a, a pilot local water management board here that had me working as a liaison between uh, basically consumptive water users like irrigated farmers and cities and and then also uh, fisheries managers like the tribes and and the state and federal uh, regulators and uh, I've always had this fascination with agriculture Alyssa and I have this this common dream of someday doing a little bit of farming ourselves but it's a really challenging uh, thing to to try to start a farm if you don't come from a lot of money or a lot of farmland and and value added is really the key if you want to pull it off uh, you need to figure out how to not sell into the commodity market so that got us thinking about how we could possibly make a go of of farming through value added uh, enterprise and and we went through quite a few business plans trying to figure out how to make that work and grains were definitely on our radar as something that was um one of the possible ways of doing it and so like milling for flour or uh, oil seed production um, these were some ideas but uh, and then actually my mom tipped me off to uh, valley malt in hadley massachusetts one, what i would call uh, one of the first right on <laughs> one of the, the first wave craft maltsters like river river bend colorado malting company and them but uh so yeah she took me off to craft malt and uh, thanks mom and then uh kind of everything pretty quickly came together uh i was getting frustrated with with my my day job and the pace of change uh saw the idea there was this concept of like market-based solutions to conservation where where you can you know, use uh if you can some way find uh find a way to get farmers out of commodity systems and paying pay them a premium for growing certain crops uh then you know you can get them to do things that are that are outside the scope of what they're currently doing conservation wise and get them to you know do bigger better more sustainable things so yeah mainstem craft malt came into the picture as i was looking into these these market-based approaches to conservation and and it just yeah it, it was a kind of a a, a beautiful confluence of, of all these things so um uh, yeah, is that is that, that uh that, that's a good big picture, yeah. And then are you drinking a beer from, from one of your uh we fund buddies? <laughs> yeah, so I'm drinking right now, I'm drinking a 
uh, a sour from Quirk Brewing uh, made with our evergreen pale, and it's specifically a blackberry sour. Uh, so it happens to be blackberry season for us, and and uh, this is made with uh, yeah, one of our one of our flagship malts, uh, new to our our customer base now. So uh, it's a particularly exciting beer to drink on a hundred and two degree day, and. Yeah, Quirk was also one of our one of our. Uh, it's like as we were starting this business, and it was just this crazy idea. Uh, we weren't quite sure how it's going to all work out. This brewery was starting in town. We don't have many breweries here. We have 180 wineries or something like that, but uh, but only a handful of breweries. And so uh, it's been a nice a nice bond with them, uh, growing our businesses together. That's great. And Kather, you you want you want to talk a little more about the the big picture? Yeah, for sure. So. I mean, on the like on the broad scale, right now we work with a suite of farmers who are um, who are our mainstay, and um, we've worked with several of them for since the very beginning. Um, and uh, as we think into the future, and we talk about access to farmland and um, equity of access, I definitely look forward to a future when uh, we have a like a diverse group of farmers that we're working with and purchasing from. Um, that's something that I see in the future. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that's about where I would leave that for the moment. You know, if, if you, if you have your network up, let's say you've got a couple hubs in a couple spots and it enables s- select farmers to participate in this, gr- you know, grain to malt system and there's these hubs of malt, you know, craft malt facilities. What, what's it, what's the typical size that, that one of your, your farmers could be? Like how small could a farmer be and make this work for them? Yeah. As an, it just is, yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, I haven't, I haven't um, done too much math on that, but it's a, it's a question worth thinking about if you, consider that a farm that we work with usually gets about two tons per acre and we need at least uh, like almost 40 tons for a batch, I would say that we need um, at least 20 acres allocated to us by a single farmer. Um, You know, that's not really accounting for the risk of their yields, et cetera. Um, so I would be curious about working with a smaller scale farmer. They, you know, certainly have to have experience in growing, uh, malt quality grain, uh, since, you know, not every, not every crop that we, uh, take in is malt quality, which means that, or we don't actually, we don't accept those lots. And so, um, it'd be, it would be worth thinking about in the future. What, who can we work with? How do we, um, how do we team up on that? Um, it's certainly easiest to work with farms that are managing larger scale operations. I think that the smallest farm we work with, oh, I'd have to think about it. I bet Phil knows the answer, but, um, you know, about a thousand acres probably. Well, that's, that's my memory's guess. Um, but I would certainly be interested yeah. in considering someone smaller that has experience um, growing malt quality grain. But you guys are out west, also, so things are different. I, I just keep thinking about little farms in New England or in upstate New York, where you know you don't have quite the the flatness or other things to have have large tracts. Um, 
how is it different out there? I mean, I know you said it's 102 degrees. It it is, but is is hot and dry good for good for barley? Yeah, great question. Um, well, you know the, I mean, first just the farm. Speaking of the farm size, uh, farmers out here have so so we are in one of the richest wheat production regions in the country, if not world. And, um, and so farmers are really good at growing, uh, mostly soft white wheat. And that goes a lot of different places, but, uh, the majority goes to, uh, goes to Asia actually. And so, so farmers are, for, are growing on at scales that, uh, allow a, a, a large commodity system to efficiently convey boatloads of grain to uh, other countries. And, and so that's set the tone for agriculture um, in general here. There are small farms like New England that serve local communities and uh, where folks have found the ability to, to get that value-added play or direct play uh, where they can stay small, but but the commodity system here dictates that farms have to be big if they're going to stay in business. Uh, so a small family farm in the Walla Walla area is like three thousand acres. Uh, you have to be really clever to to make it work on less than that. Not to say that that's I mean people are doing it, but you have to be you have to be very clever um, and and pick your. Uh, Kind of pick your markets wisely. So, from a from a uh, uh, a climate perspective, a growing climate perspective, the you know inland Northwest or Columbia Basin, uh, in, inland Interior Columbia Basin, there's we have uh, a range in rainfall that can go from seven inches to. 25 inches pretty easily and so there's a big gradient there to play off of and those different whether you're on if you're on one end you can't grow very much you can either grow uh wheat or or nothing typically is what the farmers can get away with uh and and so there's a wheat fallow rotation and then at the upper end there's a lot more crops that they can grow including uh including uh, beans, peas, and lentils, and and malting barley uh, or feed barley. So uh, we have to be selective about where we uh, where we contract uh, for malting grain, specifically where we're growing. Uh, we're asking farmers to grow uh, dry land uh, for us. So our all the grains we buy are dry farmed, so to speak. And and so yeah, we have to pick locations that are going to receive. Um, where that where that spring green up in our landscape is the is the longest, and so um, we look for places that receive a reasonable amount of precipitation in June. The month of June is really important, and fortunately, we have a fairly reliable climate here. <laughs> this is a challenging, very challenging year for everybody, uh, but but. By and large, it's been it's been a reliable place to grow quality mar- malting barley for for farmers in in certain locations. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, by, by summertime, it's hot. It's real hot and dry. Emily, how do you go about? Um, I mean, 
not how you get your clients, but but how did you end up working with Mainstem? And I also want to ask you: Are all your clients as cool as these guys? Because uh, you've got a Malga, and there's like pictures of a little little kid, you know, skipping down the road with lilac bushes, and um, it it's just like everything looks so beautiful out there, whether it's Colorado or Walla Walla or Juneau, Alaska. <laughs> Well, we like to tease you on the gram. That's for sure, Jimmy. Um, you know, I met the folks at Mainstem and Amalga through just a series of really amazing connections. And generally speaking, that's how we play it at Radcraft. We we don't, um, or we're very lucky, I should say, to just have a lot of um, interesting stories and, and fun connections as to how we meet people. And Mainstem was no different. I work heavily with the Craft Maltsters Guild, and I'm just a huge advocate of what they do. And last year, uh, Jesse, who was on beer sessions a couple weeks ago, the executive director asked me to do a marketing seminar in collaboration with Alyssa, who co-owns Mainstem. Um, and that was how I first got introduced to this exceptional brand. And flash forward about six months after that, maybe longer or or not um what is time but phil reached out to see if i might be interested in helping them communicate not only this WeFunder campaign but just um really help them with their comms as a whole and um i i learned quickly that to tell mainstem story is also to tell the stories of their many partnerships as part of this interconnected tissue that they're all um, in this supply chain together on. And that was how I first got to chat with Brandon. I actually um, called him up a couple months ago, expecting to maybe have like a 10 or 15 minute conversation about what he does and why he loves working with Mainstem for the sake of some social media posts I was putting together. And flash forward over an hour later, Brandon and I were still on the phone and I'm just, um, I'm really inspired by what they're doing in Juno. And it was Brandon who actually helped me understand that part of this relationship between Amalga and Mainstem and in general, Mainstem um, and all of their partners actually comes down to salmon um, as a, a cultural icon, really, that Brandon helped me understand. It's, it's deeply a part of what they do as Alaskan residents, and um, it's deeply a part of what Mainstem does with their Salmon Safe Malt program. Um, so I, I have answered your question and then some, but I just cannot say enough about how inspirational these two companies are and and yeah the um everybody at, at radcraft is this cool but i think we're in a particularly badass group today <laughs> <laughs> well then not that's a great now we'll go to brandon so brandon what what is the connection between salmon with with, with you and mainstem oh my goodness well salmon as a cultural so, icon wow yeah i mean so i live in in southeast alaska um, but throughout the state of Alaska, um, salmon is, I mean, salmon is the, the lifeblood of this state, right? Like we have more coastline on Alaska than, you know, any other state by so much. And, you know, the, the waters here are, are, are so important, so valuable. And, you know, for, for just for centuries, for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, salmon have been 
one of the most or probably the most essential food source. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have the waters of Bristol Bay, uh, one of the most productive sockeye fisheries in, you know, in, in, in the state, certainly in the world, actually probably the most productive sockeye fishery in the world. Um, you know, just locally, you know, I, I go out fly fishing and it's something I enjoy, but it's also the way that I stock our freezer to feed my family throughout the year. Um, I commercial fished for five years and in, in the state, you know, there, there's this constant and intense wrestling of natural resources. You know, uh, Alaska is a state rich in natural resources, but logging, if it's done wrong, destroys streams and salmon habitat. Uh, mining, if it's done wrong, you know, it's an essential part of, of our state. Those natural resource extractions are, are so important for the state's economy. If it's done wrong, can destroy salmon habitat. Um, and, you know, of course, the same thing with oil. Like these are, these are all things that are important. We, we need these for the health of the state. These industries are important. They give people jobs. They, they produce wealth for the state. But at the end of the day, our, our most valuable resource, both for for, you know, financial health of the state, but also for just health, you know, uh, I, I, like it, 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 I think it sounds maybe like a stretch to say, but I feel com com comfortable and confident saying for really the spiritual health of, of the state, you know, protecting this natural resource of salmon is, 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 is crucial. Um, well, that, that, just, that's, that's a great, great one there. I'm just going to say uh, in Union Square Green Market in New York City, there, there's a native person. He's an activist and he's out there at the farmer's market regularly. And you know what he says? He says it over and over all day. You won't believe this. He was just thinking about you guys. He says, water is life. Life is water. Life is water. Water is life. And now that you're you're saying it, I'm like that guy knows everything. <laughs> um, so let's just take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of Food Radio. We have a new brand identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and dig through our archive of 16,000 episodes. It's been 12 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that Beer Sessions Radio is on the air with 30 other weekly shows. Your contributions give HRN the security we need to stay on the air during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio. Becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows how much you care about Beer Sessions Radio and Food Radio, what it means to you. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Check us out. we got a great new website and logo, heritageradionetwork.org. It's a great time to become a member and support us, Heritage Radio Network. Org. So we're talking about water is life. Life is water with the kids from uh, Mainstem Malt and uh, Amalga Distillery. Um, Brandon, you got me inspired now. Um, and, and Kether and Phil. So the connection of salmon 
with from Walla Walla and uh, Alaska. What other connections do you, do you have with some of your other, um, you know, malt and farming partners, Keller? Yeah, that's. Um... You know, I think that all of our farmers have a conservation ethic. They they all care about their land, like they're passing it on to their kids because that's what they aim to do. Um, so they're all making decisions based on their waterways and based on their aquifer and um, trying to keep water in stream. And uh, their, their continued success in farming, they're very clear that it's rooted in environmental conservation. So while there's, um, while salmon is certainly like the greatest node, there's also all of the work that our farmers put into, um, keeping their riparian areas in good shape, keeping their pollinators on their farms, keeping, um, yeah, just being very thoughtful about, uh, the way that they're farming, um, and making decisions that are, um, that allow that to perpetuate into the future, that allow that to um, continue to be a livelihood into the future. Wow, that's pretty profound. Hey, uh, are you drinking something, Kather? Drinking any beers oh, yeah. or spirits you know, or anything? I'm in Seattle, and my favorite brewery down here is Lantern Brewing. So anytime I'm down here, I try to drink a Lantern Brewing beer. Um, they have some. They have a beer called the Apricots, um, and it's uh, sour with apricots in it and it's apricot season and i'm just all in it's my number one guy i hear they're a craft want certified brewery Kather. they are it's true phil <laughs> let's talk about craft malt certified yes and how does that play into what main sum's doing yeah that's a good question so craft malt certified um shout out to the craft maltsters guild uh and full disclosure i also uh i'm also a board member on on uh on the Craft Monsters Guild. And one of the initiatives there is, is to help our uh, participating, our member brewers and distillers uh, incorporate the messages, the diverse messages of Craft Malt into their products. So, and, and not just their products, but the, their, um, you know, their companies as a whole. So uh, brewers and distillers are able to certify uh, as a company and then also individual products for usage of craft malt. And right now the threshold is at 10%. And so uh, if you use more than that in, in individual products or, or as a company, then, then you're eligible for, and you're, and you're a member, a paying member of the Craft Maltsters Guild, then, then you can use uh, our, suite of, our suite of logos and messaging uh, to help communicate that story. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, pretty substantial challenge for, for any brewer distiller to, to like figure out how to tell that story. And so this is just an easy way for them to, to have like one, uh, malt house, um, like universal malt house, universal icon that says we support what everyone, what all the craft maltsters are doing. Yeah. Hey, let's, let's talk about the difference, you know, malts. I'm sure there's a lot of differences in, in regional grains and malts but the difference between making malt for whiskeys like the single malt whiskeys versus making it for beer who wants to tackle that uh brandon's probably a good one to to uh, carry this forward but just off off the um or just to, to speak for a number of our of our distillers uh, who are who are making american single malt whiskey it's 
it's very similar. They're following uh, very similar practices that a, a, a brewer would. And so their focus on malt quality is, uh, I think, uh, pretty, pretty unique in the broader whiskey business. And so they are basically trying to make really good beer first, minus the hops, and then, and then uh, distill that into something special. So uh, yeah, right out of the gate before, before any barrels are involved. And so for us, the, the malt, the, the pale malt, they're all buying pale malt uh, for the most part. And, and, and for us, they're buying the same pale malt that we would sell to, to a discerning craft brewer. Brandon, you want to go with that? This, yeah, let's talk about the American single malt whiskey distillers uh, like Amarga. That's that's dead on. I mean, I think that a, a big way that American single malt distillers are differentiating themselves is by paying attention to the, the quality of of the barley um, and, you know, n- not just using the most basic pale dis- distillers, pale two row. You know, we're interested in more than just volume of alcohol that you're producing from the grain. We're, we're interested in the character of, of the grain and, and proving that there, there's a character to, to the grain. Um, in our barrel house, you know, we're, we're a small, really small facility. Um, but some of our favorite barrels are, are single varietal barrels, um, where, you know, we, we use just one variety of malt um, to make whiskey so that we can show the, the, the difference in character. Um, so yeah, we're using the same barley that brewers are using um, because we strongly believe that, you know, the, the character shows through, but also that by brewing a really great beer to start with, um, you end up with a better end product. When I talk about distilling with people, I always mention that, you know, there's no alchemy involved anywhere in the process. Um, the flavors that you have in your whiskey, if you want those flavors present, those, you know, really delicious flavors, they have to come from some part of the process, right? So they have to come from your grain, your fermentation, a good healthy fermentation, uh, or or the barrel. Um, you know, nothing. There, there, there's no magic involved, uh, and so something that makes our whiskey so unique, and and you know, something that makes me really proud of it is that we use excellent quality grain, um, and you know, use not just distillers yeast that you know, has, uh, incredible efficiencies, but at the end of the day, doesn't, doesn't contribute any real flavor. Wow. You know, Brandon, you had also mentioned a uh, supply chain transparency when you were talking about doing yeah. the wheat, the we fund. Um, how does that play out with malt? I mean, when I think of that is a good comparison to like the old days of wine where you had negotiants who were just doing blends of entire regions and then there became this thing called estate bottled wine. Is this something that we're trying to do with, with craft malt now is go all the way oh, down and recognize the farmers and the malt houses. I mean, that's the dream, right? Um, you know, so on, on one level kind of revisiting, you know, the, the salmon safe thing, you know, farming isn't, you know, if, if, if we 
have barley grown here in Alaska and we have malt coming from Alaska, um, you know, we're going to have to do it in a responsible way and, and be mindful of, of, you know, our, our streams and our waters, but it's also going to be such an exciting story to tell, like that, you know, the, the barley that we're making our whiskey from is grown on these gorgeous farms that, you know, in the backdrop are these incredible snow covered mountains. I mean, it's, it's surreal to see the landscape that a lot of these farms are in. Um, you know, Phil and Alyssa came and visited and they saw these farms and the, the settings and the backdrops and telling that story is so compelling, but it's also important, right? I think the American farmers kind of disappeared from the story in a lot of ways. We go to the grocery store and we get anything and everything we want for really just so, so cheap. And, and through that, we've, we've lost a lot of diversity in crops. We've lot of, lost a lot of diversity in seeds. Um, I think right now people are excited to, to be more connected, to understand more. Um, and, and in order to do that, you know, we have to, we, the people who are using these, these agrarian products and adding value to them, we have to be the stewards of that story. We have to tell the story and be able to tell the story of, you know, the maltster, the malt house and the farmer so that people can trace from, you know, their, their glass of whiskey down the whole supply chain. And that's what we're excited about. Brandon, you, you've got some, I look at your Instagram for Amalga Distillery, besides having a little kid, uh, Bouncing around, talking about lilac drinks. Uh, <laughs> you've got some. You're working with rhubarb. You're working with a lot of like very seasonal, local ingredients. Um, what are you making? You make some whiskey, but you have all these other ingredients that I see all the time. Yeah, gin, gin, and single malt. So as far as a you know American craft distillery goes, we're pretty focused. Uh, those are the the two products that we make. Um, and we do seasonal variations on our gin using um, locally produced ingredients. Uh, so we do a rhubarb gin, just kind of a fun community thing, but it's also we're part of a rhubarb cultivation study in the state. Um, and so we're helping farmers by paying top dollar for rhubarb. Um, and they're finding what varieties of rhubarb grow well in the state and doing a bunch of test plots that we're going to help fund. Uh, we're helping to fund by buying the product that they're growing so that they can find what rhubarb is the most, most viable um, and supporting a lot of organic farmers through that. Uh, we also work with um, uh, a local native corporation and uh, source literally thousands of pounds of wild blueberries um, for making a blueberry gin. Um, so, um, we don't make a, a lot of products, but the products that we do make, we like to utilize, um, local ingredients, whether that's, you know, and when we say local, you know, we really feel like we're a part of the Pacific Northwest. We're as close to Seattle as we are to, to Anchorage and all of our waterways connect all of these cities, um, efficiently. And, um, so we like, getting our grain from the Pacific Northwest. We like getting our gin, uh, ingredients as locally as possible. And are you drinking anything right now, Brendan? Oh boy. Am I ever? 
Um, <laughs> I am, I'm, I, I decided to kind of spoil myself and open up a, a special bottle of uh, Anchorage Brewing Company's Darkest Hour. Um, and this is a cool one because it was made with malt that we commissioned from, uh, from Main Stem. And it's a, it's a smoked malt, but it's an alder smoked malt. Uh, one of the whiskeys that we make is uh, an alder smoked whiskey. You know, speaking to the regionality in Alaska, everybody, you know, if you're smoking um, salmon, if you're smoking anything, you're using you're using alder wood for it. So we wanted to impart that flavor into our whiskey. Um, but we're small, as I said earlier, and we couldn't quite afford a whole lot of uh, the alder smoked whiskey back when we commissioned it. And um, and Anchorage Brewing Company uh took uh took some and they made uh you know this imperial stout that they age in woodford reserve barrels for like a year and a half and i think it's like clocking in at 15 or 16 percent so i'm just having a little tiny snifter of it because it's one o'clock in the afternoon um but yeah, it's uh, it's a beer that we were really excited about, um, made with uh, main stem malts, alder smoke. Anchor down in Anchorage, Alaska. Wow, man, we're really covering <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of territory today. <laughs> um, back to Kether or, or Phil. Um, what is market driven conservation? Um, that's worth talking more about because that's pretty interesting. Yeah, well, Jimmy, that's that's getting back to the the idea of uh, that you have, you have multiple ways to go about uh, getting conservation projects landed. Uh, you know, one is through government incentives. Like there are a lot of programs that farmers can sign up for uh, to get very specific kinds of projects done, like planting trees and shrubs near a, a creek to provide shade for the water. Uh, there's plenty of nonprofits that uh, you know, rely on, on uh, you know, big donors and just the whole nonprofit complex to, to fund conservation projects of, of a wide range of, of types. And, uh, you know, during the, the previous administration, there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, fear that, uh, very rightfully so, that funding was drying up for those things, and that uh, conservation wasn't getting prioritized. So this is as you know, as we're entering into the main stem with the idea of like having basically the consumer market based to, to us means the consumer is ultimately footing the bill for conservation work. So um, we see it as this way to uh, provide through all these through connections spanning the supply chain be able to sell the end consumer you know, the beer spirits fans out there, sell them on the idea that there are a lot of cool things that can be done throughout the supply chain all the way back to uh, conservation on family farms and just get them to pay a bit more for the products. And if they can do that, and then there's continuity uh, in, in how that premium that they're willing to pay flows through the artisans who are making the beer and spirits and uh, through the maltster and through, uh, you know, through the farms themselves that, yeah, you can actually 
you can create this this really clean linkage between consumer willingness to pay and like cool stuff being done um, all the way back as far as family farms. So, you know, it's cool about these crowd funders. I, I actually have a friend. I, I think that they're meant to do good, aren't they? Because I have a friend. He's a mezcal importer and. He's doing a, a different type of crowdfunder, but he also works with a lot of small mezcal producers in Mexico, and, and they want to grow. And the only way they can grow is if their market grows in the states. How, how do you see what Mainstem's doing? And tell me, who wants to tell me about the WeFunder? Because it's pretty <laughs> cool. Like, why would Brandon put $1,000 into it if he's a customer? Sure. Uh, Brandon can tell you that for sure, but the whole idea, I mean, it was a natural for us because, all right, yeah, we're this, we're this supply chain company where we provide a, uh, ingredient for artisans and you know, the food and beverage industries. Uh, okay. So, uh, that has been done a whole lot. There's certainly no shortage of, there's no shortage of, uh, suppliers out there looking to, uh, pester folks like Brandon, and and his lovely wife Mora, uh, but uh, the real the real magic can happen when we're also uh, like capturing the imagination of the consumer, and so uh, we want to at, very, at the very least show them what's going on in supply chains. But then with WeFunder uh, or regulation crowdfunding in general, which is the way that. Uh, everyday people can invest in companies like ours and, uh, you know, a, a tequila company or a mezcal company. Uh, there's a, um, it's a way for, if you have a business, uh, that's attractive enough to the consumer, uh, that they just can have that mechanism to put money in and buy stock. So, uh, and there's a bunch of different formats you can do debt based, like where someone where you know, the consumer essentially, uh, everyday investors can, can put money in for a loan or there's like Kickstarter where it's, you're just buying the, you're, you're pre-ordering the product. Uh, but I think, yeah, you're right. The, the commonality here is that, uh, in all these projects is there has to be something that's attractive to the consumer. And it turns out right now that the consumer enjoys things that, uh, and is, are willing to pay for things, uh, that, that make them feel good about the whole process. That sounds great. But what, you guys are actively still running this crowdfunder, right? We are, yeah. So far, so we're about halfway through. Uh, we've raised, uh, we've raised a hundred and about one hundred and nine thousand dollars from one hundred and forty investors, and this is. Uh, we have our cap set at at a uh, million dollars, so we'll raise up to a million dollars if if folks will. Uh, be so um, inspired to support us to that degree. But uh, I think we're entering a really interesting time for the raise. So this is like the, yeah, we're entering in the second half. We have, you can take a, a look at uh, wefunder.com slash mainstem malt, uh, M-A-I-N-S-T-E-M-M-A-L-T. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a setup that, you can now see anyone going to the site can see we've got a bunch of people that really believe in us. There's this cohesive vision for how we're going to grow this thing. There's a lot of opportunities. So we have room to move and take advantage of 
various opportunities uh, depending on how things go in the next year or two years. And, and so I think uh, we're, well, we're already starting to see there are people coming out of the woodwork uh, that are rather influential and that could change the trajectory. Any one of them could change the trajectory, trajectory of our business um, for good. So uh, yeah, it's really, it's a neat time to be running this thing. And regardless of how much money we raise with it, it's this way to, it's this way to really like get out there, get the message out there about like, you know, this is, we're raising money to, to build a business. And so it's a, it's a way to show people what the business means and you know, why we would want to raise a million bucks uh, to support growth. So, um, and then we have this added layer of, we realized pretty early on in organizing this thing that, oh my gosh, there's like all these, um, you know, there's this, a huge outcry for for um, diversity, equity, inclusion, social equity, and and justice, and and uh, that we're we're effectively without any barriers uh, inviting anybody to invest in the company. So we are inviting an unprecedented degree of of diversity into the company, whether you know whether we whether we embrace it or not. So we just decided, hey, this is yeah. But just so run, just just by it. doing this, you guys are raising the profile of, of Kraft Malt, and and it, it is that part of what you're doing, Emily? Too is is trying to raise the profile of Kraft Malt. Yeah, I love the way that you said that, Jimmy. I I think I've I've really dedicated my career to that at this point, <laughs> and um, it it felt like a natural fit to get involved with Mainstem. And on this level, when we were brainstorming what this campaign slogan should be, um, put your money where your malt is, got thrown out as a joke, but it ended up really sticking because that's exactly what we're all doing, right? Oh, this this is great. This, this ties it all together for me. You know, like I said, just a few years ago, I met Aaron McLeod. You all know him uh, at Hartwood College, you know, great mind of, of of Kraft Malt. And he tried to put it in perspective for me. He said he he grew up working in, in like the Western Canada large malt industry. And he said, we're talking about maybe having a, a shipping container of malt going out for Kraft Maltsters while they were sending out, you know, hundreds of full train loads of malt for export. And I think it, does that really sum up the scales we're talking about, um, Phil or, or Kether? Like you guys are talking, you're still like craft, like craft, what craft beer is supposed to be. You're talking about, is, am I on track with that? <laughs> yes. I'm looking for you guys to help me sell this. That's why. So. <laughs> Scale has a, a lot to do with it. Um, and and so the craft malt definition right now is uh, is capped at uh, ten thousand metric tons of malt production per year. So it kind of sounds like a lot, but a truckload is about 30, uh, 32 metric tons. About and and so yeah, it doesn't take too many truckloads to uh, of grain to to figure to account for for a, a, a maxed out plant uh montana crop mall is at that at that uh, upper end of the scale and yeah the idea is you can't get too big before before you lose what's really special about craft mall and that's 
the ability to make these these uh, these local to regional connections between farmers and and brewers and distillers and and other users of malt. So uh, yeah. And then what, what about like the safety of you know one thing that came up in COVID and, and I actually liked it. Tom Vlasic, the new Secretary of Agriculture, mentioned uh, the security of like regional food systems. Um, is there an aspect of that as well? Yeah. Um, so statewide, we have a, a massive uh, food security initiative. Um, you know, we're accessible by by boat and by plane. And you know, you mentioned COVID, and we saw borders completely shut down. Um, and you know, everything that comes to Alaska, if it's not coming on a roadway, uh, is going to be ha- because we're not physically connected to any part of the country. Um, needs to come via uh, plane or water. And so, you know, in, in the state, we're looking at food security and a major part of food security is, is bringing back this agrarian uh, aspect that has been kind of with efficiencies and transportation kind of forgotten in the state. And we offer a unique way to develop the infrastructure that you need for agriculture and create a high dollar value uh, uh, agrarian product um, and and basically have all of the tools that you need for for food security um, while facilitating the growth of a of a whole new industry for the state so for the state of Alaska it's a it's a really interesting component yeah, we talked a lot about this stuff. I want to thank you guys. The beer I'm drinking, I, I got to sit with a, a one of my favorite New England brewers, Todd Mott, at Tributary up in Maine the other day, and he made a riff on a classic. If those of you know a Doppel Dunkel Weizen called Aventinus, uh, he's got one that he's going to submit to GABF. It's called Cultivator. It's a Doppel Dunkel Rogan Bach. Um, so that's a, he's put using rye instead of wheat and, um, just that kind of beer sings to me. Um, I'm really interested more in the different types of grains that can be used in beer and, and in whiskeys. And I'm really glad that we had this conversation. So thanks everybody. Is anybody want to wrap this one up? Because, um, there's a lot of things we could still talk about, but we're going to run out of time. Emily, you want to wrap this one up? Yeah, I want to say thank you for your emphasis on craft malt this summer and your willingness to continue learning about it. I feel like I send you a lot of information about craft malt lately, and you've been very receptive. So thank you. Well, thanks. And, you know, I'm learning more about the whole craft maltsters guild. Um, It's great that you're a part of that, Phil. You know, I got just 10 years ago, I, I was just learning about this. And in 2014, it was the first time I met. Andrea Stanley of Valley Malton and, and we did an event in New York City where we had 20 different Northeastern brewers play around with small batches of, of Valley Malt and half of them had never done that before. So we, we, we've come a long way and um, I, I still think the best beers that I get are at least playing with with different grains and malts and um, I'd like to I'd like to be able to see the differentiation between different craft malts as when, when beers are judged, you know, is, is anyone doing that where I know you guys have the steep method and we talked to Kether, 
you talk, you know how you, you you're 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 doing the steep method to test what what malt you might want to put in your beer. But are, are, are any beers being judged based on the quality of the malt? You know, that's a great question. Uh, so far, the Craft Maltsters Guild, as a as a component of of Craft Malt Conference, uh, which quick plug uh, will be February eighteenth uh, through the twenty sixth in an in person and virtual context uh, in twenty twenty two. That'll be held in in Portland, Maine. The, the in person part of it, uh, and then the virtual part will be open for everybody. So check it out if you want to learn more about craft malt. But one of the pieces of that is the uh, the malt cup. And that's open to all all maltsters, craft and and otherwise, and it's a competition specifically to to yeah uh, uh, test your test your metal as a as a maltster uh, with like the the quality of the malt you can provide uh, to the market. Uh, right now, we don't have an equivalent competition for judging beer or spirits by their usage of of craft malt. Um, or malt in general. So, but that is a really good point. That, that well, I tell you what, we're going to talk because we're up in the Northeast. We'll we'll get some brewers. We could probably do a, a mini version of a malt cup of of brewers. Maybe five brewers are brewing with the same malt or something like that. We'll have some fun with this. And thank you guys again. I'm going to close out. Phil, Emily, Kether, and Brandon, thanks for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our engineer, Armin Spengen, and assistant producer, Caroline Fox. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.